0: Put in. So this um, morning if you've got your Bibles, if you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter one, that'll be good. The, the text will also be up on the screen um, and I'm just going to read from First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 through to verse 25 and then um, yeah see what God has in store for us this morning. So First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to verse 25 and I'm reading from the Christian standard Bible. For the word of of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So thinking about this passage, really, um, who would have ever imagined that that the Creator of the universe, the one that um, made everything, sustains everything, upholds everything by the power of his his word, would end up um, dying an incredibly humiliating death, being being nailed to a cross? Like who would have who would have ever imagined that? Who who would have ever imagined that? The all-powerful one, that the that the, the all-sovereign one, the rain, the one that reigns in, in matchless glory, would end up coming to earth and then being treated as though he was the greatest scum on the earth. Um, people spitting in his face, people mocking him, people betraying him, people murdering him, um, him being executed as a as a criminal. No one would have ever been able to imagine that that is what would happen to the one who is all glorious all powerful all good reigning above all things um, but here in this here in this passage we we see that that is that is exactly what our our God is like now you wouldn't expect that like like I said before who would have who would have ever imagined if you think about what the world is normally like, and what the wisdom of the world is normally like, is if you are the greatest, if you are the most powerful, if you are the one that has authority, if you are the one that is in charge, you don't take on the position of a servant. You make other people serve you. That is what the that is what the wisdom of the world is is um, all about. And I was even just this week um, reading um, in the book of Daniel the story of the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is this, is this great king, um, more, more glorious than all the other kings in the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar knows it full well. But you see that Nebuchadnezzar, because he knows how great he is and because he knows how glorious he is, He absolutely therefore demands that people serve him and that people honor him and people glorify him. So there's that story where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream in the middle of the night and and he wakes up and he's desperate to understand what the meaning of this dream is. And so he says, go out and get all the diviners, go out and get all the magicians, go out and get all the noblemen. And I demand not only that they give me an, an interpretation for my dream, but also that they tell me what my dream was. And if they do not come and tell me what my dream was and what the interpretation is, I will kill them. He's on a real power trip, isn't he? he, he he's absolutely full of himself. You can't tell me my dream. You can't tell me what it meant. I'm just going to kill you. But um, David, or David, uh, Daniel ends up seeking the Lord, and God gives him the dream, God gives him the interpretation. But the same thing happens later on with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where some people come to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they tell him, Hey, King, you're so great, you're so amazing. We should put in place this law that no one prays to anyone else apart from you. We'll set up your statue for you, and everyone has to bow down before your statue, and then only allowed to pray to you. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not going to have any part to play in this, this new law. And so when the, when the time came for them to bow down before the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and refused to pray to this statue. And once again, Nebuchadnezzar, on his power trip, on his high horse, decides, okay, now he's going to throw these guys into the lion's den to execute them because of their unfaithfulness. Now, that is, the, oh, sorry, thank you, Carmelo. Yeah, Daniel got thrown into the den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into the fire. Thank you. And um, um, now you know I'm watching all of you. I spotted Carmelo going, fire, fire. (laughs) 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 Uh, (laughs) um, And and so, but that's the picture of how the world thinks. When it comes to power, when it comes to authority, when it comes to you being a sovereign, your power and authority and your privilege is there so that people can serve you, so that people can bless you, so that people can exalt you. But what we see here when it comes to Jesus Christ is he takes that wisdom and he entirely turns it upon its head. Now the problem here in the church of Corinth is that Corinth was thinking in with, with worldly wisdom and not with godly wisdom. So what was going on? Well, basically, they were dividing from one another. They were exalting themselves over each other. They were arguing with each other. So one of the things that was going on is that some of the people in Corinth were saying that, hey, my, um, I, I choose this spiritual leader because this spiritual leader is more gifted than that spiritual leader. And everyone who sides with me in following this spiritual leader, we are following the right leader. And some, others were saying, no, 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 that's absolute rubbish. Our spiritual leader is the better spiritual leader. We're following him and everyone that's following him along with us, they're in, they're in the good crowd. And some are saying, we follow Paul and we follow Apollos and we follow Cephas. And Paul's saying, this is absolute craziness not only were they doing that, but the Holy Spirit was working in their midst, and He was distributing gifts. So there was prophecy, there was healing, there was words of knowledge, there was administration, there was teaching, all the gifts that we see that were were actually taking place in this mess of a church in Corinth. So just as a side note, proof that you don't have to have it all together as a church for the Holy Spirit to show up with His gifts. Just, just, Just as a side note, all right? He was not too scared to show up in Corinth with His gifts, even though this church was an absolute mess back to the topic so some of them are are um, got these gifts and what they're doing is they're parading their gifts so they're so they're standing up in the public assembly and they want to use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given them so that they can look fantastic so that they can, they can look really great to the eyes of everyone watching and so in pride and in arrogance they are lording their spiritual gifts over one another and of course it's bringing about all sorts of damage it's bringing about all sorts of division not only is that happening there's um. There's um, Christians within the church that we don't know exactly why, but they're taking each other to court. And, and Paul gets furious over it. He said, guys, are you seriously telling me that there's no one within your church, but no one within your congregation that is wise enough and godly enough to help you figure out your own problems internally? Why are you as brothers and sisters taking each other to the worldly court, to the Roman court, And then trying to sue each other in the Roman court. Like, what is that doing for representing Jesus to the world? And so these are the sorts of problems that are going on. But at the heart of it, the biggest problem for them is that they are thinking with worldly wisdom. So at all costs, the Corinthians were taking care of number one. You You know that saying? At all costs, take care. Of number one. And who is that? That's me, myself, and I. It's me. At all costs, I got to exalt myself. At all costs, I got to defend my own rights. At all costs, I got to take care of my own privileges. At all costs, I have to make people think that I'm amazing. That is absolute worldly wisdom. But we know that we are all infected by this worldly wisdom. We know it, right? If you've got any sort of self awareness about the stuff that goes on in your own heart, you know that you are infected by this worldly wisdom. You suffer with the exact same problem that the Corinthians suffered from. So, for example, what do you do when someone cuts you off in traffic? You get angry. You get frustrated, right? You might even say some things that you're hoping no one here in the church would know that you say by yourself in the car. Right? Why do you do that? Because you feel like you've got this right, right? to not be cut off while you're in traffic. And when someone cuts you off, you're offended because they stepped on your rights. Okay, maybe you don't relate to that one. Maybe you hold a grudge towards a friend because of something unkind they said. And the friend didn't mean anything. They accidentally said something in um, conversation that you thought wasn't, wasn't very considerate. But because they said that you walk away from that conversation, now you've got a bit of a grudge in your heart towards them. It takes you a couple of days, weeks to actually get over it. You're walking around with this bitterness stewing inside you because of what they said. Maybe at your workplace, you feel like you're working your finger to the bone. You're carrying the whole team. No one one else is working as hard as you are working in the workplace. And your silly boss does not appreciate how much effort you're putting in. You're getting no recognition for all the hard work that you're putting in. And so what does that do inside your heart? You get frustrated. You get bitter. Why is he not appreciating me? Why am I the one that has to carry the rest of this lazy team? You start thinking thoughts like that. We we are all like that. Parents, we experience this all the time with our kids. Why is it? that we get impatient with our children? Why is it that, <laughs> Dave Weston's getting a nudge over there. Nice. <laughs> Why is it that we get impatient with our kids? If, 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 we, if we had perfectly selfless love, would we ever get impatient? No, they could, they could take an hour to get their clothes on before school, And you wouldn't blow a fuse. They could once again take the cups in the bath and tip the water out on the floor. And once again, you wouldn't get frustrated. They could once again take their food and decide to flick it off their forks. And you wouldn't get frustrated. But we do get frustrated and we do get angry. And then we speak down to them because we feel like we have this right we are the authority within this house. We have told you the rules that we expect you to follow within this house. And if you don't follow our rules, we've got a right to get angry at you. That's the logic. But that sort of logic is the exact same logic that the Corinthians were using. And it is a logic that is absolutely worldly and it is contrary to the the, the kingdom of God and the mind and the heart of God. Absolutely contrary to it. So when we look at, this passage here, First Corinthians chapter one, we see that 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 the wisdom of God is at the heart of it. It looks like it looks like cruciform love. It like it looks like cross-shaped love. That's what I mean by cruciform, cross-shaped love—the type of love that we see displayed on the cross. Because if you think about God, who has all power all authority. He has all control. He is all majesty, all glorious, all beautiful. And then we are stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious sinners who dishonor Him and don't give Him the glory and honor that He deserves. So that's, that's what's going on here. But how does God treat us? He had every right to be impatient with us. He had every right to lash out against us. He had every right to just wipe us off the face of the earth and say, I'm done with human beings. I don't owe them anything whatsoever. Because of who I am, I don't owe them anything, so therefore I can just wipe them right out. But what you see here in 1 Corinthians is that that is not the wisdom of God. So even though He is all-powerful, even though He is all-glorious, and even though He is majestic and He is beautiful and He is all right to remove us, what He does instead is He sacrifices His life for us. In selfless love, he is willing to be nailed to a Roman cross as the scum of the earth. God Almighty is willing to come to earth as a frail, helpless human being. And then to grow up here in our midst, carrying our burdens, experiencing our sufferings, walking the pathway of weakness, and then ultimately dying. And Paul says to Corinthians, the reason why there's so much division and the reason why there's so much arrogance and the reason why you guys are taking one another to court is because you do not understand the wisdom of God. Later on in the letter, he says, there is so much else. I would love to teach you, Corinthians, but I can't teach you these things because you are not yet ready to move past the milk and onto the solids. So he's saying the thing that actually qualifies us for maturity in the Christian life is your ability to embrace the cruciform life. It's your ability to embrace selfless love, cross-like sacrifice. He says, if you understand this principle, then you are ready for the solids in the Christian life. So the solids have got nothing to do with how smart you are. Nothing. Nothing. It's got nothing to do with you going to Bible college and getting a degree. It's got nothing to do with with, um, how much you think you already understand of God's Word. That means nothing when it comes to maturity. Paul's saying that the mark of maturity in the Christian life, that you really get it, is that you have embraced the cruciform lifestyle. He says, Corinthians, therefore you are just on milk because you don't understand this fundamental principle. So read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Let's read that again. It says, For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. says, So in the wisdom of the world, Jesus being nailed to a cross, it looks like absolute foolishness. Okay, so you're telling me this is what the Gentile and Jew would say. You're telling me that your God that you want me to worship and give my life to came to earth as a man and then he died on the cross like a criminal and his very own disciples abandoned him. You're telling me that that's God. So Paul is saying to the world, it seems like total foolishness, because they're thinking with worldly wisdom. If he's God, he should be demanding his rights. He should be pouring out his wrath. He should be pulling people into line. He should be enforcing his desires upon people. That's what a God would do, right? That's what Zeus would do. That's what the other pagan deities would do. So you're trying to tell me that your God is not like that? But Paul says that's exactly the point, because for us who are starting to get it, we realize that the fact that he's like that is exactly what makes him glorious. The fact that he's like that, that's real wisdom. And that is a real power. Because that is so different to the rest of what goes on in our broken system here in the earth. And so when we look at the cross, we discover that God is not self-centered. When you look at the cross, you discover that God is not self-exalting. When you look at the cross, you discover that God is not self-seeking. Someone might jump in, they say, whoa, no, 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 no. The Bible is full of God saying, I will do this thing for my name, and I will do this thing for my glory, and I will do this thing that the nations would know who I am. It seems to me like God is all about magnifying himself. He's all about his glory. He's all about exalting himself. Ternus, you're, you're, you're contradicting stacks and stacks of passages in God's word. But the cross shows us exactly why God wanted to reveal his name, and why he wanted to get the nation's attention, and why he wanted to be exalted. Because in that moment, when he catches your attention, and you look to see him for who he is, you discover that he is entirely selfless. When God catches the attention of the nations and he's exalted in glory, and we look up and we behold him, we discover that as we look at him, he is looking at us a million times more intensely. He's not this being that sits at the center of the universe and just sucks up all the worship and just sucks up all the adoration and just sucks up all the praise. That's what a pagan deity would do. When God catches our attention and we give him glory, the very thing that compels us to give him glory is the revelation that at the heart of it, he is perfect love, that he is not about himself. And that makes us want to worship him and adore him and glorify him all the more. So when Moses was up on the mountain, he said, God, let me see your glory. God said to him, I'll pass by in front of you and I'll declare my name. And then he declares his name, a God of compassion, a God who is slow to anger, a God who is steadfast, just and righteous. He declares his character. So what is his glory? It's the revelation of his name. What is the revelation of his name? It's the revelation of his character. So when Jesus is then in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane on a mountain again, just like Moses on a mountain, and he's praying to God that, that this cup would pass by from him, he then ends up saying, that God, glorify your name. Glorify your name. What is he saying? He's saying, this is the moment where the glory of God will pass by mankind in a way that it has never passed by mankind before where God will declare his name in a way that he has never declared his name before. And then Jesus goes and he's nailed to a cross. And for the first time, the mystery that was hidden for ages is now made abundantly clear. And we see that this God, the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, the God of Zion, has all along been this God of radical selflessness. A God of cruciform love, cross-shaped love. And Paul says, this is the wisdom of God. And Corinth, the fact that you're arguing and bickering and dividing and trying to exalt yourselves over one another shows me you don't understand the cross yet. Because the glory of God is not that he's self-exalting. The glory of God is that he is selfless and you should do likewise. So this should be an incredible comfort to our hearts. Incredible comfort to our hearts. Because it means that at all times, you can perfectly trust the intentions of God for your life. Do you know how amazing that is? If God had even, let's say he was 95% all about being selfless, but 5% all about self-exalting himself. Then you would always have this thing in the back of your mind, saying, if I pray to you and you hear my prayers, I can be 95% sure that you will do what is good and right for me. But you might just, there might just be that 5% of doubt and worry that what if God decides that today, at my expense, He's gonna glorify Himself? What if, what if, what if God decides today from that 5% of Him, that today is gonna to be the day where I'm going to let you down, or I'm going to step on you, or, or I'm gonna uh, allow something to happen in your life because that's what's gonna magnify me the most and I'm willing to do that at your expense. If there was anything in the heart of God that was like that, you and I could never be stable in our relationship with Him. We couldn't regard His love for us as unconditional. We, we, we couldn't see His love for us as an anchor that never moves. Because what if today's the day where from that 5% the anchor is going to move and he's not going to do something for my good? But because we know that he is selfless, that he is self-giving, that he is not self-centered, we can rest assured in him at all times. He loves us, that he cares for us, that he will watch over us. Yes, there might be bad things happening in our lives, but his heart's intention toward us hasn't changed whatsoever. Isn't that a God worth serving and a God worth loving and a God worth giving your everything over to? That's why Paul would say that it is in beholding His glory, the revelation of who He is as He revealed Himself on the cross. It's in beholding His glory that you and I go from glory to glory. So what's going to help you to trust God with your life? Step out in faith. It's the revelation of his radical selflessness. What is it that's going to empower you as a parent to no longer blow your fuse at your children? It's the revelation of who He is as He loves you as a perfect Heavenly Father who is selfless. What is it that's going to help you to make your life count for the kingdom of God? To use the things that you have given, that God has given you, and to generously lay those things down in serving other people. It is the revelation of His selfless love. It's beholding. That glory that you and I go from glory to glory. Amen. This revelation here absolutely transformed my life like, radically transformed my life, like, turned everything upside down in the best of ways. And for so long as a Christian, like, I, I, I struggled. I was one of those, it's like God's selfless, but at the same time, He's for His own glory. And I didn't even realize it, but in my own heart, I, I struggled to, to, to fully trust Him. I struggled to fully give myself over to Him in complete surrender. Because there's something inside me holding me back, just wondering, I just, what if I'm going to be the person that He steps on, that's going to be at my expense for His for His own glory? But when I discovered this radical truth here, it transformed me in a way that nothing else has transformed me in my life. You can ask my wife, and she will gladly testify to you that when I got this, it broke me in a way that I'd never been broken before. And God used that to change me. Now, um, what does that have to do with us? How does, how does all this apply to us in the way that we live our lives? You can go to Matthew 22, verse 34 to verse 40. Matthew 22, verse 34 to verse 40. So when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Verse 37, he said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest, the most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So, the religious leaders asked Jesus, "What's the most important command?" Jesus says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength." Makes perfect sense, right? He's the beginning of all things. He's the end of all things. He's the center of all things. We. Sh- makes sense that he is the one that we focus our love on. But then it's quite surprising what he says next. He says, in the second is like it. King James Version says, the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So God takes these two commands and he blends them into one. He says, yes, you must love me first. But you must realize that it is impossible to love me if you do not love the ones that I love. Why? Because he's a selfless being. So I've got a graph here. Aiden, if you could chuck that up for us. That would be really awesome. Very cool. So there we are down the bottom, all of us, okay, all of us people. And there is God, the God of cruciform love. And we offer up our love to him. That's, that's, that's what the arrows represent. So there we are, we're obeying Him, we're worshiping Him, we're serving Him, we're offering up love to Him as the God of cruciform love. Next slide for me. But then, as we love God, we discover that God is not this being, like I said before, that just sits at the center of the universe and just soaks up all the praise and worship. And what He then does is He blesses us, and He loves on us, and He exalts us and he affirms our worth so if you're asking the question what is worship all about worship is all about us interacting with god in the selfless relationship so we come to affirm the worth of god and like i said in that moment god doesn't just receive it, but god pours out worth on us in return that is why paul will say in ephesians that the, that the that the analogy of husband and wife is the analogy or is a parallel to relationship between Jesus and the church so what is the what does the wife do the wife selflessly gives herself over to her husband in love but what does the husband do then the husband gives himself over in selfless love to his wife. And Paul says, this is his great mystery, but I'm telling you, it's the picture of what exists between Christ and his church. So when you come to worship God, get this, it's it's mind-blowing. you come to worship God, as we should because he's so glorious, how could you not affirm his worth? In that moment, God affirms your worth in return more than what you could affirm his worth. And in that moment, as you come to bless him, God blesses you in return more than what you can bless Him. And as you come to serve God, God serves you in return more than what you can serve Him. He will never be out-loved. He will never be out-sacrificed. He will never be out-blessed. He will always love you infinitely more than what you could ever love Him. How amazing is that? So what's worship all about? Worship is experiencing God in this intimate way. This incredibly intimate way where we affirm his worth, but in return, he loves on us. You say, well, that's taking away from the glory of God. No, it's not, because he's selfless. He wants you to see that. When you recognize that, that's when he's most glorified. Oh, I love this. I love this so much. Okay, but back back to my slide. Sorry, Aiden, you jumped ahead of me a little bit there. Um, um, so, um, the first arrow was God's arrow, the white ones, right, that God's loving on us, but then you see that as our love goes up to God, since God is other focus, and God values us and celebrates us, our love has to then also affirm the worth of those who He affirms. So our love rises up to God, but then it has to, if we love God, like it's said here in, in, in Matthew 22, then our love can't stop at God. Our love has to then be for those whom He loves as well. Loving your neighbor as yourself. So John chapter 14 verse 21 says, The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And then he goes on to say that that love in this chapter is to... um, to love others the way that He has loved us. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, verse 21, we read, We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And we have this command from Him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. So it's inevitable, you know, when you really love someone that the things they really care about becomes the thing that you that you care about you know as parents your kids might be passionate about something for me let's say judson judson is so passionate about art and being creative and drawing things and making things i despise that sort of stuff like i hate sitting down like i ca- like, i this is true like i can't draw a stick man with any sort of consistency like I'm that bad with art. Um, Jud- like, Judson's already, like, entirely outdoing me, like, entirely outshining me with his, with his artistic skills. So, but I observe how much he loves art. And because I love him so much, that does something inside me where I now all of a sudden care about it too, and I'll sit down with him, and I'll draw pictures with him. Or he'll bring his little things in that he's built with his Lego set and I'll just celebrate it and actually stoke on what he's made. Not because I care about the Lego, but, but I know how much he cares about the Lego, so therefore I care about it. I love him, and so therefore the things that he cares for becomes my care. You know, for those of you that are dating or, or, or married here, I'm sure you're finding yourselves doing you're finding yourself caring about all sorts of things this very moment that before you did not care about. Something that's not innate to you, but just because your wife loves it, or your boyfriend or your girlfriend loves it, all of a sudden, it's stirring up something within you where you now care about it. What is that? It's because you really love them, and so their loves become your love. And so it is with God. So we behold His glory. And then what do we want to do? We want to worship Him, and we want to praise Him, and we want to lift up thanks to Him. How could you not when you behold who He is? But it doesn't stop there, because you know what He loves, and what does He love? He loves His creation. He loves His image bearers. He loves the people that He has put His Spirit in, your brothers and sisters in the family of God. He loves them. And so your love can't stop with Him, can't stop in the worship gathering, can't stop in the prayer meeting. It can't just be contained in what happens here on a Sunday. It has to spill over so that you find yourself serving in food bank ministries and you find yourself inviting people over your house and you find yourself not losing your cool at your children and you find yourself bearing all sorts of burdens in your workplace even though no one's saying thank you. You find yourself doing these things because you know that's what his heart is like. It just transforms you. And so then, like what Paul would have loved for the church in Corinth, we learn how to, just like Jesus, live out this lifestyle of cruciform love. Where you don't hold on to your rights, and you don't hold on to your privileges, and you don't demand thanks, and you don't demand glory, and you don't get impatient and frustrated, you're willing to let go of all those things. That, yes, they might be rightfully yours, but did god hold on to what was rightfully his no he didn't philippians 2 says that he emptied himself became a servant and was obedient even unto the point of death on a cross so are we going to be a people who who embrace the cruciform life who embrace the cross like way of loving or are we going to hold on to our worldly wisdom Exalting ourselves, protecting ourselves, making much of ourselves. When you look at what Jesus invites his people into, you see that it is so radically other focused. So radically focused on the least of these. I've got a whole second part of the sermon which I'm not going to be able to preach through. I don't even know if I should start it because it's going to go too long. But I just want to mention four ways very briefly. Jesus invites us into this cruciform way of living. The first is loving the least of these and loving the little ones. On the day of judgment, Matthew 25 tells us that God will split all humanity into two groups. And there will be the sheep, the people that will be welcomed into his kingdom, and then there will be the goats, those that aren't welcomed into his kingdom. And what is it? that separates the sheep from the goats? What is it that makes you a sheep versus being a goat? Matthew 25, Jesus says that it'll be those who clothed me when I was naked and those who fed me when I was hungry and those who visited me in prison when I was in prison. And then the people will say, but when did we ever do that for you, Jesus? When did did we clothe you when you were naked? When did we feed you when you were hungry? When did we visit you in prison? And he, he says, what you did for the least of these, you did for me. The least of these, that's us not holding on to our privileges, holding on to our rights, holding on to our status, holding on to the culture that we were born into that makes us, for some reason within the system, more well-off than other people. It says, no, 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 you did it for the least of these. You're willing to strip yourself of all that stuff, empty yourself of all that stuff, just like Jesus did, and care about the very least of these. It's in Matthew 18 when Jesus talks about the little ones we had the little ones up here today. He talks about the little ones. He says, that basically warns people and says, be careful how you treat the little ones because every day, their angels behold the face of the Father in heaven. And then he says, anyone who receives these little ones, my name receives me. Jesus is again saying, the way that I will spot the fact that you love me That you really love me is that you're willing to get on the level of the least of these. And you're willing to get on the level of the little ones. That is the way that I can really see that you love me. And I was just um, two weekends ago, I was at the um, Chatswood Shopping Center just just up here. And and I was sitting in my car and um, there was pretty much like right in front of me, There was this um, young, um, probably Indian um, guy, probably about 18. I think it was a peep later. And and he had gone to reverse out of his parking spot. And as he reversed out of his parking spot, this um, Holden statesman drove behind him. And the young um, Indian guy reversed straight into the Holden statesman. Um, And the guy that was driving the Holden gets out and he's furious, um, and he's not just furious, but he's a, he's a big guy, like big guy, big arms, bald head, the sort of guy that you don't want to be angry with you for reversing into his holden statesman, and, um, and I'm like, oh no, this guy looks really angry, so I'm watching this whole thing unfold, and the, the the big guy that gets out of his car walks out with puffed chest and lifts his arms up in the air, and this, this young Indian guy, like short guy, very skinny, um the, the, the guy comes and stands right over him with this puffed-out chest and starts yelling at him and, like, really having a go at him for what he just did. And the young guy's just standing his ground. Like, he's, like he's, not, he's not picking a fight, not being rude or anything, but he's just standing there, just listening to this guy having a, having a go at him. And I'm watching this whole thing unfold to see what's, what's, what's going to happen, and it ended up diffusing, and, and not, not much came of it, and they sorted their stuff out. But that first moment, when that guy acted in that way towards this young Indian fella, found myself wondering, would he have done the same thing if another guy that looked just like him got out of the car in that moment? You know, I actually doubt that he would have. Maybe, maybe he's the sort of guy that just wants to fight everyone, who knows? But I doubt it. And the reason why I doubt it is because that's exactly what the human heart would do. You see an opportunity to take advantage of someone see an opportunity to enforce your rights on someone. You see an opportunity to dominate or to control someone. And our heart just goes for it. But when there is something that's going to cost you socially, you wouldn't go for it. You wouldn't treat that person in that way if, if it was, was going to cost you something socially. And so that's why Jesus says that your love is actually proven by how you treat the least of these and the little ones. Because you know you know what? They can't defend themselves. They can't stand up for themselves. They can't demand their rights. If you're the authority, if you're the one that's more powerful, if you're the one that's more highly exalted within the system that we live in, then they can't defend themselves against you. And what does the human heart do do at that moment? It takes advantage of the opportunity. This This is why it's so important, parents, that you understand this, that the way you treat your children is an indication of the love that is really in your heart. When you lose your cool at your kids, when you act impatiently towards them, when you you, um, neglect them, whatever it is, that's an indication of the love that is really in your heart because they can't stand up for themselves when you're getting angry and disciplining them and threatening them with a hiding, they can't fight back. What are they going to do? So you in frustration having a go at them in that moment, Jesus says that right there is the real indication of how much love is in your heart. It's how you treat the least of these. It's how you treat the little ones. That's why the kingdom of God belongs to the little ones because God's selfless heart is all about the broken and the hurting and the neglected and the little ones. So four ways of the cruciform life should be seen in our lives. Loving the least of these, loving the little ones. It's going to mention loving our enemies. The cruciform life is willing to die for their enemies. Number three, that they love indiscriminately. we we told that the love of God, God showers down his rain on the unjust and the just alike. There's no discrimination with the love of God. He pours it out on everyone, those who deserve it and those who don't deserve it, those who are good and those who are bad. He just loves. James tells us that therefore we should love in the same way. Who are we to welcome the rich person into our gathering and say, hey, here's a seat for you, rich person, and then expect the poor person to sit on the ground? But we all do that. You show favoritism, right? Oh, that ministry leader, I'm going to make sure that I'm friends with them that person that I, that I really enjoy, I really enjoy being like them, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to go over to their house for the midweek gathering. I know there's a bunch of other people that aren't gathering anywhere, and they probably love some people that care about them in their lives, and it'd be great for me to invite them over my house, but that's not going to give me an opportunity to be with that group of people. And I really want to be with them, so I'm rather not going to open up my house for other people. Don't we do that sort of stuff all the time? We show favoritism. We're not indiscriminate in the way that we love. We choose to love the ones that are going to benefit us most in return. But the cruciform love of Jesus doesn't love like that. And the last thing I wanted to mention is that it loves sacrificially. Does your love bleed? Does your love bleed? God loved us so much that he was willing to bleed for us. The ultimate cost. He held nothing back. Paul says that he who was rich became poor, that we might become rich. other words, that you might become blessed. If we seek to love like Jesus, we're going to need to embrace a life of real radical sacrifice. I'm not talking about the way that the Western church tends to do church. This whole question of like, oh, tithe is, is tithe still applicable or is, it, or is it just offerings? Like, is it still 10% that we've got to give or is it not? Even, even asking that question for me shows that there's a problem because you're trying to get away with as little giving as possible. And I'm not talking about giving to the church. You don't have to give to the church. God will take care of us whether you give or don't give. Honestly, I don't care whether you give to the church or not. I care that you're living a sacrificial life. You're not asking the question, how little can I get away with? But you're asking the question, where is their need? And how can I emulate the radical, generous nature of my God? Bear His image and likewise give sacrificially so that those who don't have can be blessed and can be lifted up. But those who don't know their worth can recognize how much they mean to the God of this universe. So those are the four things I was going to touch on. I'm not going to flesh them out any any further than that. But I want to encourage us with this as a closing thought. Is that we need to learn to embrace this way of thinking, this wisdom of God, the selfless wisdom of God it is absolutely critical for what's gonna happen here in this congregation. We are busy building a culture that is like a temple in which the glory of God can be made manifest. That's what we're building here. It takes all of us like living stones coming together, forming this structure, this house in which God will be pleased to dwell. And if we want that, if we say we want to encounter the glory of God like God has promised, then it means we're going to have to embrace the lifestyle that Jesus is inviting us into. It's, It's essential. I want the glory of God. You want the glory of God. I know you do. So let's embrace this lifestyle so that God can be made manifest here in our midst. But it's not only necessary for what happens here within this congregation, it is absolutely necessary for what we do out there. If we're going to evangelize, and see countless souls won for the kingdom of God, lives being transformed, then it's going to require that we embrace this cruciform way of living. People want to see the love of God in your eyes before they're going to be willing to listen to what you have to say. People want to see how much you hurt for their suffering before they're going to listen to you telling them about avoiding an eternal suffering. People want to see in you the radical, sacrificial, giving love of God. And as they behold the glory of God on displaying your life, they will get a glimpse of what the real God is actually like. And then when you tell them about Jesus, it'll be all the more clear to them that the only reasonable thing to do is to give your life over to this God and to follow after Him. That is why in your Bible, even though we are commanded to preach the good news, and we're commanded to evangelize, we're commanded to go and create disciples, your Bible has far, far, far more commands for you to live a radical life of service for the least of these. Because God knows that the gospel is carried on the wings of sacrificial giving. When we embrace that sort of lifestyle, our lives will preach that this message that we're telling you is absolutely true. And to the degree that we fail to do that, to that degree that we actually strip our message of its power. So I want to invite you into that. Let's be a people who embrace this cruciform life, this selfless way of living, this cross-like way of serving the least of these in the little ones. That is the wisdom of God. That is how this church is going to be built. That is how the kingdom is going to be extended and the gates of hell driven back. Awesome. So music team, if you want to come on up, that'd be great.